0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series, in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us.
1: Good evening. I'm Krista Marks, and I'm a member of the Opera League of Los Angeles. Matthew O'Coin is an American composer, conductor, and pianist, and Los Angeles Opera's first ever artist-in-residence. This season at LA Opera, coin conducts both Rigoletto and his own opera, Crossing. coin's music has been performed and commissioned by artists, including Yo-Yo Ma, Zurich's Tonhalle Orchestra, Salzburg's Mozartium Orchestra, the Brentano Quartet, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, the Orchestra of St. Luke's, tenor Paul Appleby, and Chanticleer. His operas have been performed at the Brook- Brooklyn Academy of Music, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, the Canadian Opera Company, and elsewhere. In recent seasons, a has made conducting debuts at LA Opera, the Chicago Symphony, the LA Philharmonic, the LA Chamber Orchestra, Salzburg's Morza- Mozartium, Orchestra, the Music Academy of the West, the Rome Opera Orchestra, and Juilliard Opera. This summer, he makes his conducting debut at Santa Fe Opera, leading John Adams, Dr. Atomic. A coin is a 2012 graduate of Harvard College, summa cum laude, and a 2014 recipient of a graduate diploma in composition from the Juilliard School, Maestro coin.
0: But thank goodness we're not here tonight to talk about me anymore, uh, folks. Uh, it's, I'm so glad to see so many of you who have come early to to hopefully learn a bit more about uh, Giuseppe Verdi and particularly Rigoletto. The transcendent uh, masterpiece that you'll be hearing this evening uh, here at, at LA Opera. Um, I put it this way in my program note as well, but I, I really believe that Rigoletto is a thunderbolt. It's even for Verdi, you know, all of whose operas I love in different ways, this is a once in a lifetime occurrence and actually near the end of his life, Verdi supposedly said uh, that if he had to do it all over again, he could, you know, if his pieces had somehow disappeared, he could rewrite Otello and Falstaff, but he couldn't put himself through the experience of writing Rigoletto again. It would just have been too intense. He would have just died. And uh, I want to explore a bit why that is and what makes this piece so uniquely uh, potent. To begin with, I'm talking to a, a room full of opera lovers, so I'm sure most of you are, are pretty intimate with with Verdi. Uh, but for those of you who aren't, a few basic background facts: Giuseppe Verdi was born uh, in a little village called Buseto near Parma, Italy, in in 1813. Uh, and he was he wasn't dirt poor, but he certainly wasn't rich, and he wasn't born into a musical family either. He was not uh, like Mozart, born to a a father who was determined to to make him uh, a master of his craft by the time he was potty trained. Um, And so he he was at uh, something of an artistic disadvantage from that perspective, but maybe a, you know, human advantage, and then he was able to grow and and, and, and live life a while. Um, He didn't have it Easy as far as his his musical path Uh, At one point he was actually denied admission to the conservatory that is now called the conservatorio Giuseppe Verdi in Milan Um, he was seen first by the Italian musical establishment and then by the world's musical establishment once he was established in Italy as something of a of an unlearned uh, artist who, who kind of got by on grit and guts. And Verdi, in a way, played into those stereotypes. It's, a, it's kind of a good way to deal with, with one's own anxiety. Verdi said, yeah, I don't know the first thing about music. I'm just, a, I'm just a man of the theater. I've got good theatrical instincts. But, you know, ask the experts, ask the people at universities if you want to know about, about music so uh Verdi uh got a start in spite of his uh struggles to kind of get into conservatory uh got his start relatively young uh as a composer, and had an opera heard at La Scala when he was in his in his mid to late twenties an opera called Oberto and things seemed to be on an upward trajectory for him uh but then tragically. Verdi lost uh, his wife and his two young children uh, in very quick succession uh, to an illness that was was ravaging Milan at the time. And Verdi then had to undertake and fulfill uh, the commission of a comic opera, Un Giorno di Regno, uh, which as you can imagine is not what a person in deep, mourning wants to do. The piece didn't go particularly well, and Verdi swore never to write another note. The piece that ultimately lured him out of his extremely uh, uh, premature retirement was Nabucco, heard earlier this season at L.A. Opera. The chorus pensiero, became kind of the Beyonce level hit single all over Italy, uh, and and Verdi was kind of established as as a as a force. But then came another difficult period, a difficult period of music. What Verdi later referred to as his galley years—that is, his years as a kind of galley slave, pulling the oar, churning out. Pieces uh, on extremely short notice, rarely too libretti that he particularly felt 100% convinced about. He just didn't have the kind of artistic clout yet to say, no, I'm going to do things my way. But Verdi was canny enough to know that his trajectory was going to be like this. And that's one of my favorite things about him, actually, is that he's one of the only artists I know in any field who only gets better until he's 80 years old. I mean, it's a pretty enviable um, achievement. So after Nabucco came this period of opera after opera, some of them uh, more uh, successful today than others. One of them is, I guess I should call it the Scottish Opera. I got in a lot of trouble at a theater a couple of weeks ago for, for saying the name of that Shakespeare-inspired, like, I was almost run out of the theater, so I, I, don't, I don't think you guys would do that to me, but still. Um, it wasn't until Rigoletto, however, that the mature Verdi is completely recognizable. So what were the forces uh, at work here culturally? What, what was the musical idiom that Verdi was coming out of? Basically, he was working in the lineage of bel canto, uh, the, the lineage of Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini. Bellini, uh, possibly the most spectacular talent of the three, died quite young. And it, what's fascinating about Bellini is that he could have been on a Verdian trajectory, but we just, we just don't know. And Belcanto, which of course means simply beautiful singing, is opera that has exactly that as its core mission. It's a celebration of the beauty of the voice, uh, any dramatic situation that is an excuse for the magnification of the beauty of the voice is a good one. Uh, what this means, though, is that you know many bel canto operas are not exactly die hard; they are not action-packed, and nor would we want them to be. But you can hear in the early Verdi operas that even though he's working within the molds that he's been given, of you know, kind of. Uh, character arrives, stands in place for five minutes, uh, explaining, expressing how he or she feels, and then a bit of action happens in between, and then there's an update through another five-minute aria about how the character feels. You could feel early on that Verdi was chafing against the limitations of these forms dramatically, that his music had all of the, this sort of blood and guts quality, that it was kind of, it's like this caged animal kind of trying to get out of, of, of the strictures of these forms. Uh, and there are hints along the way that he was beginning to break the rules. For example, the character of Lady Macbeth, uh, Verdi, uh, specifically said, I don't want a beautiful voice. I, I want an ugly and a powerful voice. And to make his point... Her first entrance, of course, is spoken. Nel di della vittoria io le incontrai. It's sort of, you know, Tom Waits as, as an opera singer. Um, so he was beginning to, to sort of stretch the, stretch the limits in this way. So uh, in hindsight, it makes sense that Verdi was attracted to a play by Victor Hugo called Le Roi s'amuse, The King Enjoys Himself. It's a play about the historical French king, Francis I, and his court jester, Triboulet. These are both actually real historical figures, which I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know until rather recently. Uh, Francis I was a really important patron of Leonardo da Vinci at the end of his life. He actually gave da Vinci his, uh, I should say Leonardo, his last home and 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 Leonardo brought him the Mona Lisa near the end of his life and, and all of this. So the historical Francis was not necessarily all bad, but Victor Hugo's play certainly makes him out to be. It's the story of uh, a young, careless and carefree king uh, who is just interested in in, his uh, sexual conquests, and the tormented court jester, Triboulet, who works for him, and this horrible tragedy uh, that befalls Triboulet's daughter. The king is not the heart of this tragedy, the hunchbacked, twisted jester is the heart of it. And something about this situation made Verdi say, That's for me. Why? Well, The character of Triboulet, who became Rigoletto, is a father who has a young and innocent daughter whom he loves more than anything. And it is ultimately this love that proves destructive, uh, that proves suffocating, um, and which precipitates the whole um, horrendous, dramatic climax. And I get the sense, sort of viscerally, that Verdi related to Rigoletto as a grieving father. He had to have known what that can do to you, what love and then loss uh, can do to a person. Remember, Verdi fell into a depression uh, and and thought he would never write a note of music again. It's just unimaginable. So something about the situation made Verdi say, this is my guy, Rigoletto is my hero, even though he's Evil in a way, even though he doesn't exactly behave morally, and even though he's the source of, of of the whole catastrophe, Verdi sympathized with him. Now, Hugo's play was shut down after one night when it premiered in 1832 in France. Uh, the uh, topic of of a of a, uh, the, the head of a head of state being seen as a kind of Uh, careless psychopath. It was seen as just too incendiary, and, and it was shut down. And Verdi and his librettist, Francesco Maria Piave, faced the same problem when they tried 20 years later. They brought it to the northern Italian censors, and just as a side note, Italy wasn't yet one country. It was still a giant hodgepodge, and actually he was dealing with Austrian censors. Uh, And they basically said, are you crazy? We're never going to let this on stage. No way. And this is what's really revealing, is like what Verdi was willing to change and what he was absolutely not willing to change. And what he was willing to change was the status of the noble figure. He didn't much care that it be a king. He was perfectly happy for it to instead be... A duke, thank you. Um, And to change the setting to uh, Mantua uh, in in, in northern Italy. I'm not quite sure why that was less explosive, given that actually it was closer to where uh, the piece was being premiered, but nevertheless. This is the kind of thing that always makes me laugh when, when a certain kind of operatic traditionalist says, you can't set this piece in, you know, Chicago in the 20s. Verdi himself didn't particularly care. He's dealing at the level of Jungian archetypes. The father, the jester, the murderer, the whore, the innocent young girl. These are these are every bit as universal as Wagner's gods, and they pop up in every society. And, and it, for me, it's revealing that Verdi cared more about preserving those archetypes than he did about preserving anything at the more superficial level. And indeed the thing that he absolutely would not budge on was the centrality of Rigoletto as the tragic hero and the the center of the drama. His librettist, Piave, who did a fantastic job for Verdi but who also was beaten up by Verdi for decades and put up with it, at one point delivered a version of Rigoletto that didn't include a rape, didn't include a curse, didn't include any of the Elements of the drama that we see today is central, and of course Verdi threw it in his face. Uh, uh, one other Verdian uh, story that I, that, that I always enjoy was his later opera *Un ballo in maschera*, which also dealt with the politically sensitive issue of a, uh, a king, a Swedish king, uh, being assassinated. The uh, the censors said, it's a little bit too close to home, can you set it somewhere else? And so they tried to pick the most obscure, distant, off-the-map place to set the piece, and they picked Boston. <laughs> and so if you actually follow a certain version of Balu in Mascara, you have this absurd situation where you're at a royal court in Boston in the 1600s. I mean, it's like, it should there obviously was no such thing. Anyway, so realism is not opera's strong suit, and nor should it be. Um, back to Rigoletto. I now want to get into why I love the piece so much, and, and why I think it is a, is a breakthrough piece for Verdi. Um, the character of Rigoletto is given the most dynamic music, and the first sort of musical example that I want to look at is his massive aria in the second act, "Cortigiani vil razza Dannata, in which uh, uh, he rages at the, the the courtiers around him, basically his colleagues, who he knows uh, have uh, abducted his daughter, Gilda, but they're they're playing dumb, um, and he he fails to 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 get a a word out of them. This aria begins in a form that would have been familiar to listeners, going back to the Baroque period. It's a rage aria. Handel has tons of them. Um, It's someone who has lost control uh, of of, of his reason and who is kind of raging against uh, the forces of the universe. But in Handel, or in any composer in a certain tradition before Verdi, a rage aria was a rage aria. It would end and, and, and that would be that. But in Cortigiani, what Verdi does is, he has Rigoletto go through a psychological process of, of saying, I'm gonna to try to beat the door down to get my daughter back, and then that doesn't work. And so he has to say, okay, what, what am I gonna do instead? And he pleads, he begs and so does the music, and that doesn't work either, and so he melts completely, falls to the floor, and the music does that too. Now, I'm gonna make sure this is on. Check, yes it is, thank you. We begin full on rage, I feel like Stevie Wonder here. This is... I mean, I, I don't, but. Then mid aria, he literally pulls on the (laughs) brakes. an important part which is the singing but you wouldn't want to hear me sing Rigoletto, I promise. And then we pause and we enter this kind of servile andante of sort of he's, he hates himself so much but he's on his knees begging and finally he sees that even this total display of of powerlessness is not going to win them over and the music kind of melts in a schubertian way into the into a major key is in this moment as often in schubert the major key is actually even more painful because it's more vulnerable <laughs> Yeah, I actually am the the understudy for Rigoletto tonight also I didn't tell you that <clears throat> uh, it's this newly dynamic form it all happens within a single piece of music we're taken on this massive journey and we are shown inner change over the course of an aria and that was that was new for Verdi and it was it was new for um, the the tradition that he was he was working in there's another piece in the opera that also shows a, a, a certain kind of new sophistication uh, and it comes in the final act uh, when uh, Rigoletto has decided to have the Duke killed because he knows that the Duke has killed uh, has raped his daughter. And so he takes his daughter to the inn where he knows the Duke is staying and kind of forces her to watch through the window as the Duke uh, seduces another woman because Gilda is still at this point convinced that the Duke loves her and her alone and it's this painful uh, moment of, of, of growing up. And in this moment we have the Duke and Maddalena, the innkeeper's sister, uh, inside the house, and we have Rigoletto and Gilda outside looking in, unnoticed. Already in these four figures, we have this beautiful kind of symmetry. Gilda is young and painfully innocent. Rigoletto is old and painfully uh, experienced. The Duke, is young, but absolutely not innocent, all too versed in the ways of the world. And Maddalena is old, but unlike Rigoletto, she's not broken. She's actually, what we see with Maddalena is a masterclass in how to deal with the Duke. Gilda is watching the right way to react to uh, a person like the Duke coming onto you. Maddalena laughs it off and says, yeah, 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 I know, (laughs) you've said this to 20 other people in the past month, it's okay, I get it. Uh, I'll still probably sleep with you, but I'm under no illusions. And what Verdi does is he layers these four completely distinct psychological portraits on top of one another in the quartet Bella figlia dell'amore, and, uh, what it achieves is something that only opera can achieve, which is clarity through simultaneity. In a play or a movie, you know, if people are talking over one another, it's just it's not gonna make sense. There, there, there's a certain kind of sonic simultaneity that becomes messier as you, as you add voices. In opera, the miracle is it sometimes grows clearer, and these opposing and distinct, uh, Voices fuse into this one whole. We somehow get a gestalt view of this room, all the human activity in this room. And I, I truly cannot uh, play all the voices of it at once. You'll have to wait for the performance for that. But I would love to uh, to show you the the distinct strands, just so you can see how how uh, how much they vary. Uh, the piece begins with pretty well-known melody. The Duke is just a font of, of, of memorable tunes all night, and this is, this is one of them. It's his kind of, presumably he's used it in other women, but it's his, it's his come on to Maddalena. After a while, uh, Maddalena laughs him off. Up till now, we've heard only legato, only this fluid, liquid musical line. Maddalena cuts through it like a knife. And immediately, we hear Gilda kind of sighing painfully in the background. that alternates so that Maddalena's and Gilda's lines, when you hear them together, sound like this. And then Rigoletto, who has somehow transformed from being uh, a raving, uh, furious, uh, sort of a crazy person, he he becomes a kind of sage, and says to his daughter, "You're wasting your tears. It's just it's just really not worth it." And over the course of the quartet. These four states that don't resemble each other at all kind of interweave and interpenetrate in the most magical way um, so that it, it, it's it 's something i can only I can only compare it to the feeling at the end of a Mozart de Ponte opera where some human situation that is so sordid and so lacking in uh, any kind of nobility that's just sort of horrible, somehow through the power of the music is transformed or even redeemed. I don't know, redemption's kind of a Wagnerian word. I don't want to sound overwrought here, but that is one of my favorite things about opera, that uh, the music can redeem the, 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 the nature of, 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 of what is being talked about. I want to uh, quickly address uh, two, two more things. One is the music for Gilda. Um, Gilda is often understood to be uh, Verdi's most fragile heroine, not, uh, not a, a, an independent woman like Violetta, uh, certainly not a prankster like the wives in Falstaff, but I think that uh, a simplistic view of Gilda is really mistaken and I think you'll hear that the way our Gilda, Lisette Oropesa, sings the role uh, it answers this question beyond any doubt. What Verdi is so careful to create in Gilda is the feeling of a huge life force that has been suppressed to the breaking point. It's not that she's fragile, it's that she has been kept indoors. She's gone through puberty, but she has no idea. She never sees boys. She has. She doesn't even know her own father's name. She doesn't know he does for a living. And so this makes her uniquely and painfully susceptible to the Duke. the The whole drama hinges on two consecutive scenes in which Rigoletto first refuses to tell her the family name or his own name because he's ashamed of being known as the Jester. And then the Duke, you know, sneaks in through the window and gives her a false name, which for her is the most important thing she's ever heard. So, well, okay, maybe you could bear 30 seconds of me singing Rigoletto, but not Gilda. (laughs) Like that's, that's, I I won't wanna touch that. All I wanna say there is is actually to to, to listen carefully to Gilda's music and, and see if you can feel what strength there is there. particularly there's a great moment uh, in, in in the final act when Gilda knows that the Duke's life is uh, in danger and and, and that uh, the people inside the inn might kill him. she sees Maddalena the innkeeper's sister weeping over uh, over the possible... Murder of the Duke, and she kind of says, What? That woman is crying over him? No way. I'm going to swoop in there and, 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 and save him myself. So there's, there's more to Gilda than, than meets the eye. The other thing to listen for, I think, uh, in Rigoletto is that it's one of the first Verdi operas that shows clear influence and indeed borrowings from uh, Mozart and Beethoven. Wagner had not yet really made a mark in Italy. Verdi and Wagner were evolving kind of in parallel, and and there's a wonderful influence a couple decades later. Um, But there are two uh, pieces whose presence is really palpable in Rigoletto, and those are Mozart's Don Giovanni and Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. Um, From Don Giovanni, uh, Verdi borrowed uh, a couple of musical lightning strokes. Uh, for example, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Commendatore scene in Don Giovanni when the Commendatore's ghost bursts in and. Um, Don Giovanni a arteco, etc. Uh, at, at a similar moment in this opera, the crucial moment of the curse, when the old man Monterone curses Rigoletto. The pitches that Verdi picks are... <laughs> Novello Insulto," um, So that we, uh, even though it's in a different key, it is also sung by a bass, and it's sung by a bass who's doing exactly the same thing. So that's just a kind of, that's kind of inside baseball. Um, but near the end, uh, as the storm is winding down, Uh, the storm during which uh, the Duke has not been murdered and Gilda has, Um, Verdi borrows a lot from Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, especially in the radiant uh, major key ending of the storm when the the clouds finally dissipate. Those are just some things to, to listen for. Um, thank you. I think we do have maybe five or seven minutes in case anyone has questions, comments, critiques, concerns anything on your mind about this production or the piece or anything else Yes Oh good point. We've got a, we've got a connoisseur here. The question is the the minuet, Uh, in the first scene of Rigoletto, which, it's true, it's another borrowing from Don Giovanni. uh, In the court scene, everybody dances a minuet, and it's a very, you know, it would be like a a film today having a, you know, 40s or 50s big band soundtrack. It's a consciously out-of-date dance um, being used in a totally parodic uh, uh, fashion. Yes, any other? Yes? Yes, I can. The question is, can I talk about the moment when Rigoletto sings Pianji? You know, you could pick any moment in this opera and I'd be happy to talk about it. It's all so good. Um, After Gilda um, tells her father what happened, Rigoletto says, it's okay, it's okay, you can cry, and, and, and holds her. And the music at that moment, the only thing I can say about it is that it reminds me of a Christmas carol. It reminds me of the saddest Christmas carol in the world. I, in my, I'm not Italian, but my mom's family has Italian ancestry, and so I, I, I certainly grew up with a certain kind of Catholic Christmas service. And so th- that's what that moment always makes me think of. Pianji, pianji, von You know, you always, you almost expect it to go sleep in heavenly peace, or something like that. So I think that's he's Verdi is. uh, Thank you, thank you. He's very cunning. You know, he knows that that is the most devastating thing to do at that moment is to play a tune that reminds us of the most innocent moments of a lot of our childhoods. I think we have time, yes, for at least a couple more questions. Oh, good question. So the question is, Victor Hugo's play was canceled after one night. How was the opera received? The opera was received very well. Um, uh, Supposedly the Rigoletto had a kind of moment of paralysis before going on stage and Verdi had to kind of kick him. um, And he fell over. Um, and the cr- the crowd thought that that was a joke and they loved it because they, they figured that was part of the stage I and as a performer I do sympathize. I've had to be kicked on stage a few times uh, myself. No, but the piece was a was a huge success um, It, you know, visited every city in Italy. It's, it's the kind of thing that makes a composer like me very envious because it was still possible for a new piece to kind of go everywhere But it went everywhere in a really bodlerized form. It was heard under, like, six or seven different titles in the first couple of years with all kinds of alterations. So that's one negative thing about living in the 19th century. Yes, any other... Yes. The question is, is it true or a myth that a certain tune called La Donna Mobile was uh, withheld until the day of the premiere? You know, I wasn't there, (laughs) but... But I, I think I, 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 it's in every book I've read about it. So I think there's some truth to it. Verdi knew he had a hit when uh, he, he knew when he had a hit on his hands and he didn't want leakers. Okay, well, I suppose I better get ready. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy the show. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera.